A warm up at a first move. Great to have you with us on another day filled with recession fears, all market tears and Beijing shifting gears. And that's where we begin. The Chinese government making sweeping changes to its zero COVID policies, including a significant easing of quarantine rules. Today's moves raising hopes of an eventual growth rebound. It could also help to quell the anger of people across China. But what are the risks now to the health system if it means a surge in COVID cases during the winter? That policy shift, however, doing little to boost market sentiment in Asia, where the Hang Seng tumbled more than 3%. Context, though, as always, is key. We are up 30% in that market from the October lows. A full Chinese reopening, of course, too, will take time. And while we wait, the economy continues to weaken. Beijing today reporting dismal import and export numbers, the worst trade data, in fact, in well over two years. The IMF also warning yesterday that China's financial outlook has, quote, darkened noticeably. All this enough clearly to trigger fresh volatility across all markets, both Brent and U.S. crude trading near their lowest levels of the year. We're actually back to pre-Ukraine war crisis levels. Who better than to help make sense of all of these developments than Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of G Zero Media. We'll talk the latest from Ukraine, the moves in China, and also get his perspective on the likelihood of a softening stance from the Iranian regime too, amid clearly deep skepticism. Now, in the meantime, recession fears continue to weigh on U.S. and European markets with more Wall Street executives warning of tough times ahead. We've got the latest on that. U.S. stocks set for further losses after four straight losing sessions for the S&P 500. And as you can see, pre-market were off another three-tenths of one percent. More on all of that in just a moment. But first, we begin in China and Beijing's significant COVID strategy shift, something the government says is about, quote, keeping pace with the Times. Ivan Watson joins us now with more. Ivan, we've talked about this now for a number of days. It seems a clear relaxation of the guidelines now at the Beijing level, at the national level, but it does come in midwinter. And of course, the concerns now raised about the capacity of the healthcare system to respond if COVID cases spike. Yeah, I mean, this is being greeted by, with excitement by many Chinese who are just exhausted by months and months of lockdowns and quarantines and all these restrictions. Uh, but it also brings some new challenges to China uh, on the healthcare front. Uh, first of all, this is the first time that the national government has announced a substantial relaxation of these uh, onerous restrictions. Uh, One of them, for example, is uh, that uh, asymptomatic uh, COVID cases, uh, people with mild symptoms and close contacts of COVID cases no longer have to go into government quarantine where there have been reports of of kind of uh, unsanitary conditions and poor food and hygiene. Uh, They can do home quarantine. That's just one of 10 changes. Uh, Take a listen to some more announced by a senior health official. Outside nursing homes, welfare homes, medical institutions, childcare institutions, primary and secondary schools, and other special places, proof of negative nucleic acid results, health codes, and travel codes will no longer be required. There will also be no more checks on people who move across regions. People will no longer be required to carry out COVID testing upon arrival at another city. This is a big this is a big deal. Removing the restrictions on on travel within China. I I spoke with a friend in Shanghai, informed her about this new measure. And she said, wow, 
I'm going to get to see my parents for the first time in months who live in another province. I should go and look and try to find some plane tickets. And in fact, uh, the search volume for plane tickets on the travel platform C-Trip surged today by 160%, giving you a sense of all that that pent-up demand that is about to be uh, broken loose. On the flip side of this, there is some concern because for years now, the Chinese government has been warning its population of the threat, the dangers of COVID, uh, of long COVID. And almost overnight, that narrative has changed in the state media to, hey, this new Omicron variant isn't so lethal. We can live with it. We might have 80 percent of the population getting it. And, And that's a bit of whiplash. Some Chinese are worried that now with the restrictions being removed, they may be vulnerable to the illness. And and that is a fact that epidemiologists are warning about. They're saying, Julia, that that, uh, there is very low immunity within the Chinese population. And in fact, uh, there are large numbers of Chinese in the most vulnerable bracket that are not vaccinated at all. Take a look at this statistic. Only about 23% of... uh, uh, Chinese citizens over the age of 80 are completely unvaccinated. We think that's more than 8 million people who now could uh, face uh, this illness. And there are some models out there suggesting suggesting that there could be more than a million deaths in uh, the months to come. This is coming as winter is coming. It's a, it's a, it's a tough time when you already you have flu moving around. These are some major challenges that China will have to cope with. One of the measures it's also adopting is saying it's going to try to ramp up vaccinations for these most vulnerable segments of society. Julia. Yes. So excitement and buoyancy among some parts of the population, perhaps some real concerns in other parts. Um, Ivan, we shall see. Thank you so much for that report there. Ivan Watson. And China's COVID challenges, as we were discussing, uh, just one of the many key issues weighing on global markets. U.S. stocks on pace for another week open after a one and a half percent drop for the S&P, as I mentioned already on Tuesday, a two percent sell off in tech stocks, too. All this as the heads of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan warn once again about the outlook for U.S. growth. Paula Monica joins us on this. Paul, it was the Walmart boss yesterday, the Goldman Sachs CEO, J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, all warning about challenges for the uh, for the economic outlook. If you look at what we saw earlier this week, we also had strong data and the uh, investors sold stocks on that as well, concerned that perhaps that means higher rates rather than lower rates. So it just feels very nervy to me at the moment. It's incredibly jittery right now, Julia. I think that the market is still holding out hope somewhat perversely that if the economy deteriorates so rapidly in 2023, that maybe the Fed will reverse course, stop the rate hikes sooner rather than later, and then maybe even begin to cut rates at the end of 2023. That might be a bit premature, but clearly we are seeing signs of nervousness from leaders of corporate America. You mentioned David Solomon at Goldman Sachs, his comments about the possibility that maybe there needs to be uh, uh, a a lower level of bonuses for investment bankers at Goldman Sachs. I'm sure a lot of viewers are really not shedding tears over that, but still, it's not a great sign. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon continuing to be uh, gloomy, taking some breaks from bashing crypto to 
talk about how he sees potentially, you know, more sluggishness ahead for the U.S. economy. So you add all that up and you can understand why the market after this huge rally since mid-October and in through November might be taking a pause. I mean, gosh, we could spend a, a whole show talking about some of the comments, actually, that he made. I think he called crypto pet rocks. He compared it to a uh, pet rocks, which is a classic Jamie Diamond style. Token, um, yes. Yeah, we won't, token. We, <laughs> we won't even go there. I do think the um, the broader context is important, actually. And um, one of my bright sparks on my team was just showing the yearly chart for, for some of these stock markets in the United States. And I do think that's very important. It's been almost like a yo-yo trip. And we have actually bounced quite significantly if you look at those November lows. So we also have to put these daily changes into context too, I think. Exactly. I mean, the the Dow, amazingly enough, again, it's only 30 companies, but it's only down about 8% this year. I wrote, uh, you know, I think it was last week that mm. it's not out of the realm of possibility with a major quote unquote Santa Claus rally that the Dow could finish close to break even or maybe even positive. It's going to take a lot, but it could happen. Not going to happen for the S&P or the NASDAQ. S&P still down 17%. NASDAQ down nearly 30%. Obviously, investors are still worried about the Fed and rate hikes, even though bond yields have come back from their highs earlier this year as well. We're hovering around 3.5 on the 10-year. That's down from a high of around 4.3 in late October. But at the beginning of this year, rates were only 1.5%. Yeah, the context on this is key. Paul, great to chat to you. Thank you. Paul and Monica there. Okay, let's move on. Police arresting extremists in Germany, where 25 followers of a far-right group are suspected of plotting to overthrow the government. Prosecutors claim the group's members followed conspiracy myths and QAnon ideology. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, when I was reading through the details of this story, it, um, it sort of blew my mind. These guys have been plotting a violent coup since 2021, I believe, planning to storm parliament and, and seize power. What more can you tell us about, one, how this... Um, coup was prevented and these individuals were found? Well, it seems to be an intelligence-driven operation. The police say that they went after 52 people. They got 25 of them, 22 of them, uh, all Germans. Uh, members, they believe, suspected to be members of this far-right group, three of them supporters of the group. So there are 27 still out there ostensibly on the run or a police have yet to announce that they, that they caught them. Um, what they were planning to do is, as you say, staggering the violent overthrow of, of the parliament, the Bundestag. This is a group, Reisberger, that doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the German government, but not happy with going out and protesting about it on the streets. Some of their members were former members of the German military. And the attorney general, who's been laying out some of the details today, has described what would have been a potential violent attack on the Bundestag to try to take control of it. And then this group had their own set of people that they were going to put into ministerial positions and to run the army as well. So this was not an idle group sitting at home twiddling their thumbs. Uh, the state uh, or the, the, the uh, federal uh, uh, chief justice has ordered that eight so far of the members of this group that have been arrested continue to be detained, including someone they call Heinrich PR. Um, he is believed to be the ringleader of the group. So they were going to install themselves as another government by violent means. Astonishing. Um, we will continue to follow developments in this story. And um, yes, eyes wide open. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that report there. 
Now, Democrats in the United States rounded off the midterm election season with a win. CNN is projecting Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock has held on to his seat, defeating the Republican Herschel Walker in a runoff election. It's a win that will give Democrats greater leverage in the Senate next year. Senate, uh, Senator Warnock got emotional as he thanked his supporters on Tuesday night. My roots, like the roots of those oak trees, go deep down into the soil of Savannah and Waycross and Scriven County and Burke County. I am Georgia. CNN's Amara Walker joins us now. Amara, a, a victory on many counts for the senator himself, for the Democrats, of course, in terms of control in the Senate, but also, I think, a loss once again for a Trump picked candidate, or at least a Trump-backed candidate in these elections. Yeah. Yeah, Julie, I mean, Herschel Walker was hand-picked uh, by the former President Trump, so this is obviously a big loss uh, for Trump and also for the Republican Party, because clearly uh, it was Raphael Warnock's message, uh, competence and character, which he was hammering home, that really seemed to have resonated with the voters. So the Democrat Raphael Warnock uh, prevailing to this six-year full term in the Senate. Um, his win really underscores several things. Uh, first off, Georgia, the state we are in now, is truly a swing state. Uh, this is something that Georgia Democrats have been looking at very closely, and they will use this win as a blueprint as they try to win in 2024, Georgia is absolutely a crucial battleground state now. It also highlights uh, the Democrats' ground game. Uh, this was something that was set up by uh, Stacey Abrams, who ran for uh, unsuccessfully ran for governor again uh, this time around. But uh, there was this controversial voting law that Georgia lawmakers passed after the presidential election in 2020 that shortened the period between the general election and the runoff from nine weeks to four weeks. It also reduced the number of early voting days pretty significantly. And what the Senator Raphael Warnock was hoping for was a big early voting turnout. He was hoping that turnout would really give him enough cushion to win on election day. And that is exactly what happened for him. Julia, turnout was robust. We're talking about 3.5 million people turning out, although that is slightly less than the general of 3.9 million. But again, keep in mind, this was a runoff uh, that just shows how much interest uh, and enthusiasm there was in this Senate runoff. Julia. Amra Walker, thank you so much for that. Get your name right the second time around. My apologies for that. OK, straight ahead. Moscow blames Ukraine for drone strikes inside Russia. President and founder of G Zero Media, Ian Bremmer, joins us after this to discuss. Welcome back to First Move. Time has picked its person of the year for 2022. And the winner is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the spirit of Ukraine. Time recognizing his leadership during the war with Russia and the resilience that the nation has shown. At the same time, a powerful statement coming from his office saying Russia is resorting to using, quote, cheap methods of waging war. The Ukrainian military says it shot down 14 Iranian attack drones overnight. 
Those comments just one day after Russia claimed Ukraine carried out three drone strikes on its air bases, two of which were inside Russian territory. Ukraine hasn't taken responsibility for those attacks. Joining us now, Ian Bremmer, president and founder of G Zero Media. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Would Change the World. Ian, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to start talking about what we've seen in, in recent days. I mentioned Ukraine hasn't taken responsibility for those attacks, but one of those strikes, I believe, 160 kilometers away from, from Moscow. Should and does Russia feel more vulnerable as a result? Uh, absolutely. Uh, this is uh, particularly an attack against one of the most important uh, uh, military bases uh, that Russia has to be used against Ukraine with longer range bombers. Uh, and uh, the fact that the Ukrainians are able and willing to hit it matters, of course. Uh, but I want to go back for just a moment and offer my congratulations to Volodymyr Zelensky. It's the right choice. Uh, Julia, I remember back at the Munich Security Conference days before the war started and French President Macron directly offered to Zelensky uh, that they would provide safe haven, provide special forces to get him out of Kiev and bring him to Poland, bring him to Lviv. The Americans were supportive, NATO was supportive. And what Zelensky said as his country was about to be invaded, he said, I don't need a plane, I need ammo. And if there's been one message that we've heard from the Ukrainian president over the last year as he has fought and led his people bravely uh, against Russian assault, uh, it is that uh, he's willing to risk his life alongside uh, his attacked uh, co-citizens um, to try to do their best to defend Ukraine's independence. And that's been a pretty staggering story this year. I'm glad that uh, my colleagues at time uh, made that decision. You know, you raise such an important point. And forgive me, actually, for not asking your, your opinion on this to, to begin with. It's tough to predict the what would have happened had the situation been different. But... Had he decided to take that plane, or at least if he'd have been a different leader in this situation, do you think the West would have provided the support that they have and, and held together in the provision of that support? Had this been a different there's leader? No and, yeah. There's no, there's no way. In fact, the sanctions against Russia would be considerably more limited than they are today. Perversely, if Ukraine had lost, if Zelensky had folded, it would look a lot more like what we saw after 2014 than what we see this year. It's precisely because Zelensky stood up for his people that you got the Americans and American allies to rally behind Ukraine, to send billions and billions of dollars of military equipment, of humanitarian support, to invite uh, Ukraine to become a member of the European Union, all 27 states voted in favor of that, to put unprecedented levels of sanctions against Russia, a country that the world needs economically for food, for, for fuel, for fertilizer, eight rounds of sanctions, 27 European countries and the Americans and the Canadians and the UK all supporting those sanctions. None of that was going to happen if Zelensky had taken that plane. That's what 2022 is all about. Occasionally people matter. Uh, even a a former comedian who was on Dancing with the Stars, running a country that wasn't particularly well governed, that most people in America had never spent any time thinking about. And this year, probably been the most important international story on the global stage. Underestimated by many quarters. Um, underestimated less today, uh, to your point. And clearly, 
in the beginning and perhaps throughout this crisis underestimated by Vladimir Putin himself too. Um, if we circle back to, to, I think, the importance of those drone attacks on Russian territory, is the Kremlin vulnerable when we're talking about a strike 160 kilometers away from Moscow? I'm just throwing it out there, Ian, just out of interest, perhaps more than anything else, whether or not Ukraine would decide to, to, to do something or someone else. Well, uh, look, I, I don't think so. Uh, and certainly when you say someone else, we need to recognize that NATO has not wanted this war to expand beyond Ukraine. And that's what's limited NATO from providing a no-fly zone or from putting troops on the ground or taking a whole bunch of other steps, including provided providing more advanced weaponry that would allow Ukraine to more easily strike deeply inside Russian territory uh, because they're concerned about how Russia might react if they felt existentially threatened. The way, by the way, the Ukrainians have felt existentially threatened pretty much every day of this crisis. So, of course, uh, you know, is this fair? No, none of this is fair. But you understand that the United States and the European Union states are not Ukraine and the citizens of NATO are not suffering and facing the consequences the Ukrainians are every day. So it's understandable that they would respond differently. The Ukrainian government certainly is trying their hardest to give back as good as they're getting, but they are not committing tens of thousands of war crimes against the Russians. In fact, when we talk about war crimes committed by Ukraine, we talk about the assassination of a of, of Alexander Dugin's daughter, for example, when they tried to get Dugin himself, the Steve Bannon type um, in Russia. I, that's a war crime, but it, it's and, and it should be condemned. But it pales compared to what the Ukrainians have been dealing with literally every day of this crisis. The fact that their civilian infrastructure is presently being attacked every day by the Russians with Russian ballistic missiles, with Iranian drones, um, with the intention to terrorize the Ukrainians, to literally starve and freeze them into submission this winter. So there is no comparison between the way the Russians are fighting this war and the way the Ukrainians are. The extraordinary thing is that the Russians are no longer capable of regaining significant territory on the ground. So these, these horrific decisions that the Russians are taking against the civilians in part comes from desperation, in part comes because Putin has announced these annexations of territory, most of which he doesn't actually control. He's announced this special military operation, won't call it a war, um, that he can't actually win. Um, and, and yet he's unprepared to accept anything less than uh, at least to date uh, then, then, then capturing wholesale large swaths of Ukrainian territory, and that's why we continue to see this damage play out every day in our in our headlines. One more question on this, because I want to get your views on uh, on other subjects too, and it's a point that that you raised recently, and I think it's a very interesting one, and the risk perhaps that that Russia does step forward, knowing full well that it won't be accepted by the other side and calls for a truce, but then puts. Uh, the Ukrainian president in a position where he has to turn around and say, no, we're not giving any ground and no, we're not going to call a truce at this moment. And then perhaps faces pressure from certain quarters for not being willing to negotiate at all. How high is that risk? Uh, you've seen a bit of that with, you know, the Russians talking about the fact that, no, the Ukrainians are the ones that refuse to negotiate. And certainly over the course of the winter, I've heard from NATO leaders, I've heard from leaders of uh, G7 states, including the United States, that there is concern that Putin would announce 
that he wants a truce with absolutely no intention of implementing one because he knows that the Ukrainian government could never accept it because uh, they could politically and also because Russia still occupies large swaths of territory that they've taken since February 24th. And the question is, might someone like Emmanuel Macron, who's been saying, oh, the Chinese need to be involved in negotiations, oh, the Russians need to be provided uh, guarantees and assurances from NATO, a little out of step, not completely, but a little out of step with the Americans, certainly with the Ukrainians, uh, might you see Macron and other NATO leaders start to say, oh, well, this is an opportunity. We need to we need to talk to Putin right now. That that truce is something we should accept. The Ukrainians would not. And it was very important on the back of Macron's state visit mm. that Biden and Macron specifically publicly aligned on if there are to be negotiations. And of course, that would include a truce. The Ukrainians have to be the ones to make that decision. It's very important in the face of what you just asked, Julia, that NATO stands very, very solidly together with the Ukrainians on that decision. Because of course, one of the reasons this war has gone as well as it has for Ukraine since the invasion is because NATO has been so solidly united with Kiev and with the president, uh, Zelensky, um, in their willingness to face down the Russian threat. But interesting to your point that Emmanuel Macron feels confident enough now to openly push China to uh, to intervene and help find some kind of resolution to this too. Um, oh, we could talk for hours. I want to talk about China and what you make of the sure. state level relaxation of restrictions. Clearly, politically easier for Xi Jinping to do so today post uh, the Party Congress than than before. Yes. But of course, it is midwinter. They have a lack of healthcare infrastructure, which clearly they need to be ramping up and have said they will do at this stage. But it does feel like a further giant experiment, quite frankly. It is an experiment. It's an experiment that comes as the Chinese are now taking vaccines much more seriously for those citizens over 80, for those citizens with pre-existing conditions. On the one hand, there's been a lot of vaccine hesitancy. The Chinese from the early days uh, were saying these Western vaccines aren't very good. They were promoting a lot of disinformation around them. And of course, the Chinese also believe more in Eastern medicine and vaccines themselves are, uh, that's Western medicine. That's, you know, you give a drug and you fix everything, right? Even that's not the way vaccine actually works. There is a lot of skepticism there. So this is China now basically saying, we're gonna roll that back and we're gonna not gonna put in a formal mandate, but essentially we're gonna do everything we can to make sure all of these elderly get vaccinated in very short order and roll back, relax some of the lockdown standards, say that you can quarantine in home for much of the population. That's much, much more convenient. Um, stop the blocking of emergency exits during quarantines, for example, which is why they couldn't uh, fight that fire that ended up with a lot of civilians dead up in Urumqi. Um, but of course, if what we see is massive uncontained spread of COVID as a consequence and Chinese hospitals starting to get overwhelmed, yes, They've built out a lot more ICU beds. They've built out a lot more hospitals um, and they're vaccinating a lot more people, but they will have to roll back that experimental um, loosening if they start feeling like this is gonna lead to the one, one and a half million or more Chinese dead, which is what their official studies have been saying mm. for the last few months. So we're gonna watch this space very carefully. This is, this is not even the beginning of the end of this story. No, I can't help but make a compare and contrast to 
um, the situation in Iran in the face of, of similar public protests too, and the, the ability of China to be able to perhaps relax some of these restrictions, but maintain control and, and the That's emphasis right. on power here relative to some hopes. And I know you're a deep skeptic over, over what's going on in Iran, and I have about 90 seconds, Ian, but talk to me about what you think in terms of some of the headlines and perhaps the uh, misinterpretation of what happened in Iran at the weekend. You know, when you're confident in your message, in your strength, um, you can respond more strategically. Mm. And we see this in how the Chinese government hasn't arrested all the people in the demonstrations, just found them, faced surveillance, go and said, look, if you do this again, take a pledge, you're in trouble. But for now, we're going to slap you on the wrist and we're going to respond effectively to some of the demands that you made. That is, frankly, a, a confident dictator um, in China that feels like there's no threat to his power. In Iran, it's a very different story. The supreme leader using repression and refusing to budge even one iota over Iranian demands with two months of major demonstrations, far bigger than anything you've seen in China so far. One other thing I'd mention, Julia, all of these stories by the New York Times, the BBC and others this weekend that the Iranian morality police were banned, that's fake news. It's not the case. It was misreported. I'm deeply disturbed that that's the reporting that Americans and others got. Those headlines should have been taken down. Yeah. Ian, important message as always. Great to chat to you. Thank you so you much. Ian Bremer, president and founder of G Zero Media there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Shares of GSK and Sanofi surging after a major legal victory. A U.S. judge has dismissed thousands of lawsuits claiming that the heartburn drug Zantac caused cancer. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, what do we know about these drugs and the claims against the companies? Clearly huge relief today from investors. Mm. This dates back to 2019 when a small laboratory in Connecticut essentially said that it's called Valishaw, claimed that the heartburn medication Zantac and generic versions of it could cause some forms of cancer. And this is a drug that was widely sold by some of the biggest names in pharma. So we have GSK, Sanofi, Pfizer, Boehringer, Ingelheim. In total, since 2019 and now, almost 2,500 lawsuits have been filed and tens of thousands of claims have also been registered. And at one stage, it was considered that this could cost some of these companies tens of billions of dollars. In total, one of the highest estimates I saw from Morgan Stanley said as much as $45 billion. So as of the last 24 hours, a U.S. district judge in Florida has simply dismissed the case. They say that experts couldn't show a legitimate link between the drug and the cancers that have been caused, according to the claimants. So you can understand why we are seeing share prices rocketing, frankly. We saw GSK up 8% earlier today, Snoffy 6%. Pfizer, I believe, has just opened for business and is rising a little bit higher there. Julia? Yeah, I saw the comments from GSK saying that the ruling slapped down, quote, unreliable and litigation driven science, which is an interesting quote, but it's not over yet. There were what, another 50,000 potential claims out there in other states? So as you say, the pharma companies are certainly seeing this as a big victory. And we've had statements from the likes of GSK saying just that. However, there's, of course, always the possibility of an appeal. And I think that's probably quite likely in this situation. Also, these pharma companies are expecting lawsuits in state courts. 
quite a few. The first will be in February next year in California. So the Zantac issue has been, I think, substantially de-risked. And I think we can see that in the share price, but it's certainly not off the table. I also think you've got to remember all those claimants, thousands of claimants who believe that their cancers have been caused by a heartburn drug. The last few months and years must have been horribly frustrating. And for many of them, it's not over yet. It's not over now. And some of these cases will be going forward into next year. Yeah, one to watch. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, coming up after the break here on First Move, why Bright Drop is a bright spot in the EV delivery market. The GM offshoot has hit the accelerator on growth and the CEO is up next. Welcome back to First Move and a reprieve. The major averages turning higher. The S&P 500 now up for the first time in five sessions, though it is just the opening few moments of the session's trade. Concerns on the health of the market, though, clearly remain. Investors pricing in the possibility of a 2023 recession as U.S. banking heads sound the alarm on the New Year's economic outlook. Investors also worrying how even a shallow recession might impact earnings. Caution, too, ahead of some critical inflation numbers out later this week and next. And Apple shares trying to bounce after a 2.5% loss in Tuesday's session due to sales concerns. Reports also say Apple will delay the rollout of its Apple car until 2026. That would be a year later than currently expected. And the car also may not be fully autonomous, as was first rumoured. Apple having a pretty torrid time in 2022, currently down some 20% year to date. Now, as companies commit to striving for a zero carbon future, General Motors is using its muscle to supply firms in need of greener vehicles. Its fast growing subsidiary Bright Drop doesn't just make them, it also offers smart container solutions and an AI backed software to help decarbonize last mile delivery. It set a target of producing 50,000 trucks a year by 2025, with the likes of FedEx, Walmart, Hertz and Verizon among its customers. And you can add to that expansion into Canada at a retooled GM plant that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau behind the wheel, as you can see in that tweet. And Brightdrop says it's on track to reach $1 billion worth of revenue in 2023 just its third year of existence. Travis Katz is Bright Drop's president and CEO, and he joins us now. Wow, that's a lot of good news. It looks like a dual tailwind. If I look at what you've been saying in recent weeks, it's the climate commitments from companies that's driving the demand for your product, but also, I think, to some degree at least, finally the economics of EV2. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thanks for having me, Julia. So this is a really exciting moment uh, that we're living through right now, where we're seeing this incredible momentum in this sector to decarbonize last mile delivery. And by last mile delivery, I really mean how all those packages that may be arriving on your doorstep this holiday season get there. Um, and what we're seeing is that companies are not only all the big companies that we're working with, so companies like FedEx and like Walmart and like DHL have all made commitments to get to zero zero emissions uh, by 2035 or 2040. Um, but they're not just doing it uh, for to make us all feel good or to really address the environmental challenges, although those challenges are very serious. They're also doing it because it makes economic sense. So we estimate that on average, customers are going to save about $10,000 per vehicle per year when they switch from a traditional diesel van to an electric bright drop van. So it's one of these moves that is both great for the environment and it's great for the customer's bottom line. So what's the approximate break-even point? If they're saving 10000 
dollars per year per vehicle net, I'm assuming, but the upfront cost of the EV truck clearly is going to be higher, I would assume, than a, a diesel or a combustion engine alternative. How quickly can they break even based on that? Approximately. Yeah, pretty quickly, actually. So so we're estimating companies are going to break even between 18 and 24 months uh, versus mm-hmm. buying a traditional step van. And when you think about $10,000 a year um, over the 10-year life of a vehicle or 15-year life of a vehicle, the vehicle more than pays for itself in this, those savings. So it's, it's really pretty incredible that we are at this moment where the technology is finally mature enough that not only can we do the right thing uh, for the planet, but we can also do the right thing uh, from an economic perspective. So it makes it really an easy decision for customers uh, to make the switch. And I think when you add on top of that in the U.S., uh, the new incentives that have come out, um, the potential for clean energy tax incentives, it, it, it cre- creates a little more momentum there for customers as, as they look to make this switch. Yeah, I was just doing some fast mathematics there, and I don't want to do the sales pitch for you, but there's a $30,000 tax credit, isn't there, in the Inflation Reduction Act, from my memory, for commercial electric vehicles. So if we're talking about an 18 to 24 month break even without that, then I mean, it's almost instant with that. Yeah. So so we're still waiting for all the details on the IRA to be finished. The Treasury Department's writing those now um, for there's up to $40,000, I believe, for larger vehicles, the, the size vehicles that Brightrop is building, which are sort of the, the vehicles you see driving up and down your street delivering packages today. Uh, are are eligible for up to a seventy five hundred dollar credit per vehicle, right. so a little bit less than, than the, the thirty forty thousand dollars, but still quite significant. Let's talk about what else you offer because it's not just about the vehicles, and we have been showing the vehicles that for this last mile delivery. But I also mentioned the provision of software as well, and I know that you're also road testing e carts as well. Just explain the importance both of perhaps a subscription software service to the business, but also um, the e-carts. Yeah, to, to put it in context, so we've been, all, all of us have been buying more and more things online, I think, and the pandemic really accelerated this trend. And while we all love the convenience of online shopping, the reality is that to get all those packages to all those front doors, you need a lot of vehicles. And what we've been doing is just packing more and more vehicles uh, into our city streets. And what that's doing is two things. First of all, those traditionally have been diesel vehicles. So they're, so they're emitting a lot of carbon. But in addition, it's creating a lot of traffic congestion in our cities. So all of us have seen, you know, sometimes these trucks have to double park uh, and block a lane of traffic or block a bike lane um, in order to get to the front door. And that's creating sort of snarls of traffic in our cities. We've developed a whole suite of products. We have our electric delivery vans called the Zevo. But we also have our Trace e-carts and we have a software suite. And all of these together are really designed to help both eliminate carbon, but also reduce urban congestion and make our streets safer. So the e-carts we've tested with FedEx, uh, and, and to imagine these e-carts, they're essentially a, a giant locker on wheels with electric propulsion. They can carry up to 250 pounds of packages in a single go. So they're really replacing the dolly that you see uh, these delivery folks struggling with, you know, to, to get upstairs, uh, they can carry 250 pounds of packages uh, effortlessly. So mm-hmm. it allows rather than a truck sort of stopping and a driver making three or four uh, trips back and forth to the van to make a single delivery, they can just drop an e-card and the truck can keep moving and the delivery driver can go and do those. So it lets, lets you separate the delivery runner from the driver and lets traffic keep flowing. 
When yeah. we tested these with FedEx in New York, they were able to reduce their curbside dwell time, um, so how long a truck is sitting there, by about 50%. So that's real wow. savings, and that's going to help our cities really flow. Yeah, and wherever data is concerned, just the ability to quantify what your footprint isn't or is and, and reduce some of that work for individual companies to allow them to focus on their core business, I think is vital if we want to tackle um, addressing carbon footprints wherever you are um, on a on a consistent basis. Um, you said 50 trucks production by 2025. Can I ask what the order book looks like? Is, is 2025 covered? So, so... We are seeing, so we've, we've got more than 25,000 reservations uh, from big customers like FedEx, like Walmart, uh, like Verizon, who has one of the biggest service fleets out there. And we just announced this week that we were adding shipping giant DHL to our roster. So what you're seeing is mm. some of the biggest names in the industry are coming to Bright Drop because they really trust what we're doing. They know we can deliver for them. Um, and we already are delivering for customers today. We've got uh, vehicles on the road with FedEx in Los Angeles already. With our announcement this week that we'd opened our factory, what that really means is that we're going from sort of the the, the early stages um, to this becoming real today and going to scale today. And I think the power that General Motors, uh, our parent company, brings is that we know how to scale these kinds of businesses. So we're going to see this business scale up very, very rapidly starting this year. And you're going to start seeing these trucks on your streets delivering packages, and you'll know that those packages that have arrived at your front door have arrived uh, without any tailpipe emissions, which is really a revolution when you think about it. Um, So we're really excited about this, you know, this momentum and how quickly uh, this is going to scale up. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out the um, the sort of benefits of being under that that GM GM umbrella for for many reasons, particularly resilience in what is a cash burn business, potentially into a a slowdown too. Um, I want to ask you something that's sort of a sideline to this, but I think it's very important. I, I read your whole CV. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You've founded tech startups. You worked in media. You did a stint at McKinsey, the business consultancy. Um, I also had a look at your, your Twitter and you're not afraid to question Elon Musk's $8 subscription price for, for, for the use of Twitter. Can I just ask you, you know, how important that is as sort of a big advertising platform, why you are willing to perhaps criticize that. And um, just to throw in there as well, I guess, to the point, the bigger point about what's going on in Twitter now, you know, what free speech actually means to you as an individual and as a leader? Yeah, so so as a little bit of context, um, I, I was one of the early executives at MySpace, so really was there for, at the birth of this industry. <laughs> and so it is an industry that I care about a lot. Um, I I think the reality is in this industry, and this has always been the case uh, for social media, if you want to build an advertising-based business, you need to build a platform where people can trust that their advertisements are not appearing next to content that might be offensive to some of their customers. And so that that's kind of just the basics of how ad businesses have always worked. And, and, and I think... That's something that uh, Twitter is is relearning, um, relearning today. Diplomatic. So just to be clear, you're not going to be advertising Bright Drop products on Twitter anytime soon. Well, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> we our our business because we're we're a B two B business, and so um, 
most of our most of our work is done really directly with clients. We do a lot of in-person stuff where they can test drive vehicles. Um, so so advertising is not a huge driver of the bright drop business. Today. I was going to say, you, you could have pushed that back up to GM and said, ask them. <laughs> Travis, great to chat. You can yeah, use that I, next I time. Believe, I, believe, <laughs> I believe General Motors has has uh, paused its advertising or had paused its advertising. Yes, but but I don't know where what the current status is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Travis. We'll chat again soon. Great to have you on and uh, good luck next year. Fun times. Yeah, Travis thanks, Katz. Julia. It's great to Thank see you. Thank you. President and CEO of Bright Drop there. Welcome back to First Move. Morocco becoming the first ever Arab nation to reach the World Cup quarterfinals. Watch this. In a major upset, the Moroccans beat Spain in a penalty shootout. Meanwhile, no Moraldo, no problem. Portugal's 21-year-old Gonzalo Ramos scored a hat-trick against Switzerland, while Cristiano Ronaldo was benched. Darren Lewis joins us now from Doha. Darren, my pronunciation's all messed up there in my sheer excitement for Morocco. I'm so sorry to our Spanish viewers, but wow. Wow. I'm so proud. <laughs> Absolutely. And so are a fair few million uh, yes. Moroccan fans as well. They're an Arab nation. They're a Muslim nation. They're an African nation, the fourth African nation to get to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. The first Arab nation to reach the last states. And they played with so much style and verve. I know uh, the Portuguese were impressive as well, but it's such a big achievement for the Moroccans. Their coach, Walid Rogragi, only took charge in August. And yet he has only conceded just one goal, Julia, in his six games in charge so far. They're doing a superb job. And they are making a lot of people around Western Europe, as well as here, in Qatar, very happy indeed. Yeah, I mean, I was on air yesterday when this result finally came in and I was watching some of the, the penalties that were taken. And, you know, we, I was having a conversation with, um, with one of my friends afterwards and they were like, you never blame the goalie if he lets goals in. But the performance <laughs> from him was absolutely phenomenal. And I'm speaking to someone who knows nothing about football, but even I can appreciate that. Um, talk to me about Cristiano Ronaldo, though. I mean, there were a lot of people that were arguing that, that if he were left on the bench, this would be punishment. But uh, his replacement kind of proved that wrong. What a performance. Yeah, absolutely. This happened for club and country as well. He was left on the bench for Manchester United. Lots of people said that would be a problem. They're doing OK at the moment. And now he has left. And now that's happened for his country as well. And the problem for him now is exactly as you suggest, his replacement. A young man called Gonzalo Ramos. He's 21 years of age. When he was in the uh, academy and, and coming through the ranks at his club, Benfica in Portugal, they called him the wizard. Now the Portuguese papers are calling him the destroyer because that's exactly what he did last night to Switzerland. Three goals, the first player to score a hat-trick at the World Cup since 1990. And his performance was simply stunning. And Ronaldo came on late, didn't score, doesn't score goals in the knockout stages, only scores goals in the group stages at the World Cup. That's another thing that counts against him. 70% junior of the Portuguese public telling the press yesterday that they would prefer him to be on the bench and the younger players I've got to cut in. We've got five seconds left. We've got to go. (laughs) Well done, Portugal, Morocco. Darren, thank you. You'll be back. Absolutely. I might not be. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. See you tomorrow. Maybe. Maybe. 